Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another podcast. It's sliceoffice.com brought to you by our friends at the Operating Engineers, Local 139, and Madison Teamsters, Local 695. Joining us now, John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation. And, John, we start out with this. Well, I came and parked the child of God. Sounds as good as the day it was recorded, comrade. It really does. And, you know, the incredible thing about uh, about David Crosby, who has died at age 81, is that um, he was a incredibly capable songwriter, very, very capable guitarist, uh, a good, solid singer. But what made him amazing is those harmonies. And, you know, we don't necessarily... Uh, celebrate people for their ability to harmonize, their ability to join in with one or two or three other people and create something that's amazing. You may not like this comparison, but Three Dog Night was pretty good at that, too. No, I like it a lot. I yeah. think Three Dog Night um, you know, actually is a very good example of that, and I think they're still on the road, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but that's, that is a, uh, a talent, and it is something communal. Right, it's something about singing that may, takes you away from just the singer-songwriter, uh, or you know, the leader of a band, to something bigger than that. And there was a remarkable period, you know, from the mid '60s until the the late '70s, really, arguably into the '80s, where David Crosby, in band after band, from the Birds through CSN, CSNY, uh, and everything, where he was just central to that. The other thing about him was um, he lived a, a crazy life, a wild, you know, for a long time, very self-destructive life. But by the same token, um, he had a joy to be about him. He, he seemed to be 
in an awful lot of sentences, he seemed to be having a pretty good time. And he was also very political. He was somebody who uh, always had a, a strong point of view and, and expressed it, you know, right up you know, to the last days of his life. I didn't uh, save, I can't find, I shouldn't say I didn't save, but I can't find, I did an interview with him when he came to Overture in 2018. And he could not have been kind, I was a little nervous about doing this interview. He couldn't, because he could be cantankerous. He could not have been nicer, more thoughtful, soft-spoken. And I will tell you, he was very conscious of Madison's importance to the changing of the country back in the 1960s and 70s. He loved Madison. Yeah, he was, look, the guy was a very engaged, very political guy. Um, and, you know, you saw that in the songs, and, and many of the songs had a political component. They were often so beautifully constructed that people didn't, didn't recognize that, right? They, they would, you know, this is just a great rock song. And of course, that's the genius. If you're if you're writing a song that is political at its best, you want it to be something that people uh, hear. They can hear the politics, but they should hear it in a way that that draws them in. They're drawn into the whole of the song, and he really understood that. But yeah, he he was he was a remarkable figure. Uh, my favorite image of him is uh, you know kind of stuffed not not real comfortably into a suit and I think tie. Um, at the Carter White House in June of 1977, uh, when somebody had the idea of having uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I don't think Young came along, uh, go to the White House uh, and meet with the president. And, and there, was, there's a, there are pictures of uh, David Crosby next to Jimmy Carter joking, right, you know, talking to each other and, and going back and forth. Uh, but I can tell you, as, and you know from your interview, so, and, and I can tell you somebody's Brown him a bit. Um, you know, if you got him in a political discussion, he held his own quite well. Well, I feel fortunate. I've gotten to interview George Carlin and David Crosby. That's that's quite a pair. Uh, uh, Chris Morris, who used to uh, be a disc jockey at the old Radio Free Madison, uh, is an L.A. writer now. He writes for a number of publications, including Variety. You ought to check out his piece that he wrote uh he said that crosby stills nash and young basically were uh, america's response to the beatles but boy you know the beatles started out with kind of fluffy music that crosby stills and nash didn't yeah yeah i think that's a I, I, you know i think that's a little bit of a stretch for a comparison um there was the beatles did not arrive as a super group Right, they arrived as a a group that was you know four hardworking guys who made it right, and that's that's one road up. Whereas in the late '60s, you started to have this phenomenon of the supergroup, right, where you took people from different bands, different uh, backgrounds, put them together into something, and and you know hoped that that magic would occur. And and certainly you know you saw that a bit with Cream, you saw that with. You know, lots of other bands. Bad Company? And Bad Company is a classic example of that. And, you know, we could really run down the list. That was sort of the phenomenon of the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and I think that's where you see Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That They came together um, initially as, you know, folks who were in that L.A. scene. Of course, Nash is from Britain. Um, and they were in that L.A. scene. They got together. They started doing some pretty remarkable stuff. And then they drew in 
you know, their fourth player, uh, who was always sort of a little little less in than, than out, you know, sometimes would be a part, sometimes would leave, uh, with Neil Young. And, yeah, I mean, there's just something incredible that occurred. And, and the, just, you know how they met? I can't remember which, whether it was Crosby, Stills, or Nash, literally ran into Neil Young. There was a car accident. Neil Young would drive around California yeah. in a hearse with Ontario license plates. Yep. <laughs> and they got in... A car accident, and that's how they met. Well, I think that they might have had some some contact before, but that's how they were reacquainted. Re- if okay, not, reacquainted. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, and if you if you want to really get wild there, you remember that uh, Neil Young's friend uh, around that time was Rick James, who was you know, the, <laughs> and Rick James was a, uh, a Canadian as well, and uh, a, dra- a draft. Well, he was a draft dodger yeah. from Buffalo who went to Canada. And then circle back down to LA. Um, and so it was a pretty wild scene. How so, you got Rick James into this topic is... <laughs> don't want to miss that. Um, and uh, Rick and so, James is a punchline, is what he is. Well, he has been, but at that time he was, uh, I think... He's I, a very, very talented performer. And, anyway. and he was actually doing you know something akin to folk rock at that time. But I just want to say one thing about when CSN evolved into CSNY, you know. Um, so imagine this. They get together, you know, in that, you know, 68, 69 period. And, you know, they're, you suddenly you've got Woodstock and stuff like that. But then um, it's, it's moved so quickly. They were writing amazing songs so fast and, and moving them into the charts so quickly. So just think of this, that, um, you know, they come together and in the spring of uh, you know, 1970, after the Kent State shootings, they produce you know, what is arguably one of the biggest hit protest songs, Ohio, of all time. And, and something that is, you know, to this day, remembered uh, you know, by people who aren't even all that political for its incredibly chilling, effective uh, presentation well you know so, and then you, you you kind of meld buffalo springfield into this and, and neil young wrote that ohio song pretty yep. quickly right after that event oh, in a matter of yeah. hours and and yet though again uh, this is the remarkable thing about david crosby um he always understood the politics of it right but he also you can't underestimate the musicality that he brought to these songs and and this is a big deal uh, there's a there's a live version of the song Wooden Ships, which oh. is actually a brilliant song. And there's a live version of the song Wooden Ships, which um, Crosby wrote. I think Nash was in on it, too. But the third writer on it um, was Paul Kantner from Jefferson Airplane. And there's a version where the three of them do it. And it's a relatively longer version that almost has a little bit of a Grateful Dead feel to it, um, but with just these remarkable harmonies and where David Crosby comes in both on his guitar where he's a great player, really able player, and then also with his harmonies there and even singing, you know, some of the some of the lyrics of the song. It's you you realize that for all of his controversy and all, and there's a lot of controversy around him. He didn't always get on well with you know overall with some of his bandmates, but for all the controversy when he was on stage he could take a great song and turn it into something, you know, much more than that, something that was really magic. And um, he's, he's a remarkable figure 
in American music and really global music over the last, you know, almost 60 years. So we've lost Jeff Beck and David Crosby. Yeah. Within and, a very uh, short period of time. It, and, and both about the same age, Beck 78, Crosby 81. It, it is perhaps notable that Crosby lived a little longer, um, despite a lot of... Uh, so he had a liver transplant and three heart attacks, and he made he, it to 81. I'd say that's pretty good. It's encouraging, but I think a lot of credit is given to his wife, uh, who apparently was very long-suffering. Well, you, uh, are, you, are, you are married, so you know that women save a lot of men's lives. Uh, there's simply no doubt of that. Um, but there's also something else. Um, he had some experiences about 30, 40 years ago, a good long time ago, um, that really shook him, uh, and he cleaned up. And then, you know, in his later years, he became uh, not a scold. He didn't, you know, like become very rigid or anything like that, but he became uh, a, a, an amusing, often amusing elder statesman. And he took on that role very gracefully, um, showed up for other people, uh, you know, nurtured a lot of young artists, and uh, appeared on their albums, invited them to appear on his. And, and so uh, he ended up as, as perhaps something of a, of a gentler character than he started out. Because I do think it's important to remember, in his early days, um, he was he was indeed an edgy character who, on <laughs> more than one occasion, got kicked out of bands, uh, and in fact, uh, cl- certainly clashed with the folks back in the Birds. But if I, I don't want to underestimate it, so as long as we're talking about him, I think we we do have to go back to the Birds for a moment and recognize that you know while Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young was amazing, right? It's really the Birds in many ways that were the American answer to the Beatles. Um, not as successful by any measure, but coming up uh, in the mid-60s there and really producing a unique initial sound with Mr. Tambourine Man. Well, and I think Chris was making that point. He was making a broader point that David Crosby was a response to the Beatles. But... And my respect for Chris knows no end, so don't don't, uh, don't doubt that. But what I'm saying I think he got the scoop on this story. Did he really? Yeah. No kidding? Yeah. Yeah, I think well, you got the story. It's an LA story. It's an LA story. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very remarkable. If you ever get a chance, uh, Chris wrote a book on how Dylan's songs changed his life throughout history in a kind of a contemporaneous fashion. It's, it's a fascinating book. Well, he's really, I mean, he's one of a, several people who came out of Madison who ended up being, you know, tend to head out to LA and ended up really being brilliant cultural critics and cultural commentary. So he was at the very first Crosby, Stills, and Nash show at the Chicago Auditorium before they flew off and went to Woodstock. That is, I guess that, that's the ticket stub you keep, right? Uh, well, he's, he's, yeah, that's where Chris is from originally, Chicago. So that was remarkable. All right, we'll take a, we didn't, I didn't mean to talk about that for 15 minutes, but you know what? It was well worth it. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation with us at slicesoffice.com. We're back at SlyesOffice.com, brought to you by our good friends at Madison Computer Works and also Jeff's Guitar Clinic. John, how did we get to a point in our culture that somebody who lost a race by 48 points, 48 points, would end up going on a shooting spree or hiring people to shoot people who... 
in some cases had nothing to do with this election. Let me just play a short clip of this. Tonight, Solomon Pena, the Republican candidate who lost his election in a landslide, appearing in court virtually, wearing a red jumpsuit, shackled, accused of orchestrating terrifying attacks targeting Democratic leaders in New Mexico. Late today, the judge ordering him to remain behind bars without bail. You will be held without bond until that hearing. The 39-year-old, who previously served nearly seven years in prison for felony theft, now being held on suspicion of multiple crimes, including shooting at an occupied dwelling, shooting from a motor vehicle, and conspiracy. Officials say Pena was an election denier, angry over his loss for a statehouse seat, hiring four hitmen to shoot at the homes of four state and county leaders, even pulling the trigger himself in one case. So we frequently laugh at people like Timothy Rampton in Wisconsin and, oh, uh, Michelle Branchin from Menominee Falls. We laugh at these people because they're kind of comic figures. But this is dangerous. Well, I think, I think we do have to make a distinction between folks who, you know, state their views. And even if we disagree with their views and folks who, you know, step across the line like this guy in Arizona did. And I think that's an important thing to understand our challenge right now... Yeah, but how is, can you tell who's who's going to go over the edge? Well, you know, look, uh, let me put it this way. Um, our challenge right now is that we have uh, seen a situation where denial of reality has become so integrated into politics that um, that it gets really dangerous. And and you you don't know I guess and I'm not trying to be overly sympathetic to somebody or not here but it's a this question of where to where um, the the bad player and where the victim comes in here because I think there are an awfully lot of people out there who have gotten so uh, charged up on the theory that you know somehow there's rampant election cheating or there's rampant you know dishonesty out there. That they they really do believe that that you know big things are at stake, right? That that the fate of the republic is at stake, and you know when we talk about individuals at the lower level, um, you know I'm always, I always get a little cautious about that because I, I think you got to look at Trump. I mean you can't you can't you know look away from the reality that at the top of the ladder you have a former president of the United States running around, um, you know spouting lies, complete unmitigated lies, and and creating, in many senses, a political movement based around lies. the of those So, lies. you know, most sentient human beings knew that Donald Trump was a con artist and a liar before he became president, but for some reason, when he took that oath of office and he, which he completely disregarded, that was a real validate, when he became president, that was a real stamp of approval for a lot of people. It's like, well, this must be okay because America elected him president. Well, I think that, and see, that's the point I'm trying to get to. Rather than, you know, saying, oh, uh, like, getting too mad about the individuals at the lower level or down the, down the political food chain to one extent. This is the big deal. I, 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 and I, I, you know, talk about Trump here, but I would also talk about a lot of Republican political leaders at the highest level who... Um, you know, absolutely knew Trump was spouting a line of BS, and yet, you know, danced around it. Well, right? then, then maybe it's time to start calling out Mike Gallagher, who...
For some reason, the Wisconsin press just loves, look, he's moving up in the house. He's doing this. He's doing that. He's a, he's a normal one. He has gone along with this charade for the last six years, seven years. And he's yeah. done nothing to stop it. And you know he's getting ready to run for the U.S. Senate if he can get away with it. And somehow the, the Wisconsin press has given him a complete pass. Well, you see, and that's that's the interesting thing. Was I'm not sure he is going to make this run for the Senate now because he's he's taken on this China thing, and it's going to be very interesting to see whether this China committee that they've China uh, manufacturing trade type committee uh, that they've they've com- created whether he's going to try and ride that into a Senate race. If he does, I think that's going to be a very clumsy situation, or whether he really, you know. Um, does take seriously the chairmanship of that and end up as you know a long-term member of the House working on, on some of these issues. But do you agree with me that he's largely been given a pass? Oh, yeah. And, S- same and with Brian Stile. Yeah, although Stile's a much quieter member in, in a whole bunch of ways. But the, the interesting thing about it is, make the uh, comparison, if you will, um, of, you know, Gallagher, right? We understand you know where Gallagher's coming from and how he's handled himself. Uh, over the years, right? And then uh, consider who held that seat uh, before him, Reed Ribble. And uh, Reed Ribble uh, was a reasonably conservative Republican. But boy, um, when things started to get crazy with Trump, what did Reed Ribble do? He stood up very, very clearly and stood up to his own party, stood up to, uh, obviously, to Trump, and ultimately left Congress. Right, stood down, you know, and maybe you can get mad at him for for not sticking around. But the fact of the matter is that um, the comparison between Reed Ribble and uh, Mike Gallagher is, you know, jaw dropping because Ribble really did do what you're supposed to do, right? Here, and, and all right, let, up for your party and your country. Here's a little update on the crazy caucus. <laughs> Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene recently said that if she and Steve Bannon had organized the January 6th attack on the Capitol, quote, we would have won and it would have been armed, has been named to the powerful Homeland Security Committee by House Republican leaders. She later claimed her comment was a sarcastic joke. Q is a patriot. Shortly before being elected to Congress, Greene repeated conspiracy theories that the September 11th attack was an inside job by the U.S. government. It's odd there's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. But Green has now become a strong ally of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. She will also sit on the House Oversight Committee, which plans to heavily investigate the Biden administration and the Biden family. Join- All right, we're going we're gonna to get to watch this fun little game for the next couple years. This is almost like some of these people who are openly pro-Putin, this is almost like when Viktor Yanukovych was running Ukraine, these people aren't show no fidelity to the American Constitution. They're completely lawless. How can this be? <laughs> well, I mean, with all due respect, there have been a few folks in Congress over the years who uh, who didn't quite rise to the occasion. So, well, no, but now, you know, this isn't that they weren't necessarily a they weren't a an existential threat to the United States. They may have been crooks, but these people are a whole new ballgame. And maybe I own, maybe I owe Viktor Yanukovych uh, an apology. Maybe he's not as bad as Marjorie Taylor Greene, but you get my point. 
Well, let me let me suggest something to you, and and here's my uh, my thought on this thing. What do you think Kevin McCarthy's up to here, right? Um, putting all these you know incendiary figures on the oversight committee um, because, in a weird kind of way, if you really wanted oversight to to work to be effective, wouldn't you put um, a bunch of suit and tie lawyerly responsible players, maybe one of the, you know, the fire-breathing extremists, but mostly put more suit-and-tie responsible players in there so that you can actually make the cases that you want to make. You can actually convince people. Whereas what Kevin McCarthy has done here is kind of, you know, send all these people over to the oversight committee, which I think is, what you know, by its nature is going to become bad theater, really bad theater. Um, and and I think ultimately a lot of people are going to turn it off. So weirdly enough, my sense is that McCarthy has actually undermined um, the efforts to, you know, if, if indeed there was an effort to do any kind of real accountability on any of this. And I fully acknowledge I, I that there's not much to hold account. I, and I wouldn't, and don't give him too much credit. I'm not sure. If you think that this is actually kind of, of a plan to isolate them, do you think he's really that smart? Maybe he's well, got somebody smart that works for him, but... Maybe somebody smart that works for him because it's just an interesting. Don't you think? I mean, to me, it's very interesting that they're all concentrated there, right? And yes, there's going to be a lot of noise, and within their echo chamber, they're going to be heard, right? And so that's going to satisfy them because you know Matt Gates, people like that. They they really like the headlines, but the headlines are not going to be um, convincing many people. And my sense is that that. Whether it was intentional or a mistake, uh, McCarthy really tripped up here. I, I think putting all these folks on, you know, or so many of them on oversight, uh, just it, it, it's not going to help their cause, and it's going to create a uh, a huge noise, if you will, a distraction that I think ultimately is more likely to discredit the Republican majority than to improve its position or to strengthen its 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 arguments. All right, then we've got this. Steps taken by the Treasury Secretary, essentially by Congress, a little bit more time to try and hash out an agreement, but that is only temporary, and right now there is no deal in sight. If Congress does not act to raise the debt limit in the coming months, seniors could stop receiving Social Security payments. Troops could go unpaid. We could see interest rates spike on everything from mortgage to car to credit card payments. And we're not talking about money to pay for future projects. Raising the nation's borrowing limit is all about paying for the nation's current bills. It's something that Congress has done over the last 80 years. Democrats and Republicans have worked together to do this. But this time, House Republicans say if they agree to raise the debt limit, then they want the president to agree to spending cuts. The White House firing back, saying this should be done with no conditions around it. They insist they're not even willing to negotiate with Republicans. So right now you have this bitter standoff. The U.S. has never defaulted on its debt, but neither side is giving it. Michael. All right. Now, Congressman Pocan thinks there's a way around this, and there's a few Republican members they can work with. How do you see this playing out? It's really a mess. Um, I, I think that, that, look, there are Republicans that you can work with. In fact, this is one of the deals in, in our Congress. There's a, the biggest uh, caucus in the Republican caucus is the corporate caucus, right? It's the people who are there <laughs> basically to do the business of Wall Street, right? 
And anybody who doubts that, you know, it really should take a look at the voting patterns there. So you've got dozens and dozens of Republicans who are going to be disinclined to shut down the federal government. They, they recognize, they're smart enough to recognize the damage that is done. The question, though, and this is the complexity of it, who wants to be the first to sign on, right? Uh, who wants to be the, the leader of the group that goes and works with the Democrats on a discharge position, petition or something else in this regard? Well, um, I, the first place I would look would be people who maybe have signaled they're getting ready to retire. It's a, well, I was just going to get there. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, you're, you take those dozens and dozens of corporate members, and you knock out just about everybody who comes from a solidly Republican district that wants to run for re-election, right? Because they're unlikely to stand up and show courage at this point. They, didn't do, they haven't done much of it in the past on, on impeachment or other issues. And, and so then you end up with a very small group, which is the retirement caucus, the people who are willing to either sacrifice their seat in a primary, probably lose it, or to simply retire. And can you get enough of them to, on a, and this isn't just a one-shot deal slide, this has got to be something that's going to go on and on and on. They're effectively going to have to break with their party, because um, McCarthy can't give them any cover on their committees or other things, because if he did, he would then face uh, a revolt you know, now under these new rules that would make it very easy to remove him. And so you, you're going to need a group of, if indeed they exist, a group of, you know, probably seven or eight um, older Republicans who are, again, either willing to give up their seat or to retire. Well, maybe and, one of them that has a military base in their district. With soldiers not getting paid? Boy. It, it, you're right that they're, I mean, they're, I expect, and here's the deal. I would tell you, and it's why I asked that initial question, who wants to be the first, right? Once something like this happened, if you had a group stand up, then I could imagine that that group could grow and that people would come in, and especially people who are very secure in their districts, and say, look, I, you know, I think this is wrong. I want to reduce federal spending. I've got a plan to do it, but this isn't the way to go. Well, let me make a prediction. It won't be Glenn Grothman, <laughs> it won't be Congressman Tiffany, and it won't be Congressman Van Orden. How's that? Yeah, and I'm kind of going to bet you it won't be Congressman Fitzgerald either. Uh, oh, or, yeah. Congressman. Or Brian Stile. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the Wisconsin delegation is, is a little Atrocious. bit unlikely. It's an it's awful, lead. awful <laughs> delegation of people. You know, it, I never thought I'd say I miss Jim Sensenbrenner, and I, oh. I really don't, but... Uh, the truth is, uh, some of the Republicans that we had at, at, did have some sense of reality. Some. You missed Jim Sensenbrenner on voting rights. Yeah, right. He was actually very good on voting rights issues. Right. And uh, on science issues, by the way. All right, John. So Joe Biden, two years into his presidency, responded to these uh, documents that have been uh, found on his property in his garage. Here's what he said yesterday. My documents for the first time since a special counsel was named to investigate the matter and appearing confident that there was no serious wrongdoing. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. Thank you. Uh, your response to that? 
you know, look, uh, he's in a position where, you know, I think what he said, what he just said there, that, that short, um, there's no there there, um, is probably as good a response as you can have. But, of course, you just, you know, we were just talking off, off air about situations where somebody, when you're explaining, you're already in a difficult position, right, politically. And for Biden, look, I mean, this isn't going to go away. This is something that, that he has some core responsibilities. First, make sure there are no more documents. I mean, this, this should be job one. Go through everything, get everything over, you know, to the right people. Check Hunter's, uh, check Hunter's laptop. Absolutely. <laughs> Show 100% cooperation. Be very, very transparent about it. Um, be very apologetic about it. And Well, he um, wasn't apologetic there. No, but I'm saying, be, you know, for mistakes, mistakes are made, be apologetic about it. And then ultimately, ultimately, um, say that you're going to respect the inquiry, right? And, and then you walk away. You go do other, you know what I mean? If you, if you fully cooperated, if you are apologetic, and you respect the inquiry, then at a certain point you get to talk about other things, right? But if you, um, if you keep getting drawn back into explanations, excuses, and stuff like that, it's very damaging. Um, and, and part of what's damaging here is that um, you know, even, if, even if there's a proportionality issue, and I think there is, um, you know, when you had Trump doing what Trump did, and then you had everybody piling on Trump saying, boy, you know, no excuses here, boy. You, you take those documents. You're in trouble. You're a bad player. Um, and then you have Biden get, you know, pulled into, uh, again, I think by mistake, but by his own mistakes, but get pulled into that situation. Um, that's something that the average American who doesn't follow this stuff in, in particularly minute ways uh, is going to, you know, fall into that situation of saying, boy, you know, all these players have a problem. And um, where I think this ends up, Sly, uh, unless you find evidence of actual criminal wrongdoing, you know, like use, use of these documents, not, not having them by mistake, but actually using them for some bad or nefarious purpose on the part of anybody who's got them, unless you find it, what we really have to get to is a new standard for classification, because you know, they classify yeah. so and, and it, it's too much. It crossed my mind the other day, is, has anybody asked Barack Obama or Jimmy Carter or any of the other former living presidents, George W. Bush? Yeah. Do, they, and, do you have Are there papers even for the dead pres Gerald Ford and, uh, you know, George George H.W. Bush. Are there documents well, at their libraries? Can I give you one name here? that I don't know, maybe you mentioned it in your litany there, but maybe not. Um, I would say the number one, Bill Clinton. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, Bill Clinton had a lot of trouble in that White House, right? Especially in those last couple of years. And, um, and he left as a young man with a lot of concerns about his legacy and stuff like that. And I'm not saying intentionally, but I would, I, I mean, maybe, you know, who knows, well. but... Yeah. I would say that if there's one person that I would bet you um, is that people are looking at right now, it would probably be Clinton. This whole document issue really started with Richard Nixon. Yep, yep. <laughs> Everything started with Richard Every, Nixon. You know, and, and you know the one guy who I bet is innocent in all this? Well, maybe it might have taken documents but wouldn't have known it would be Reagan. Yes, well. You know. And, and you know the issue. It would be the Iran Contra issue. Well, yeah, I mean, but 
but that's what, you know, and I know we could go down this whole rabbit hole forever, but um, then I think, you know, what really gets interesting there is that if there was anybody who's very complicated on all this stuff, it would be George H.W. Bush, right? Because George H.W. Bush, remember, had the overlay of Iran-Contra on him, as well as a lot of other stuff. And frankly, he didn't trust Clinton all that much. And so uh, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, the truth is that if you had a, a, a deep inquiry and you really looked hard at all of this, again, um, do you really think Lyndon Johnson didn't do whatever he wanted to do? Yeah, by, the, um, by the way, you remember, I, I mentioned Viktor Yanukovych at the beginning of this conversation. Do you remember when Ukrainians ransacked his mansion and found all those documents like buried in a swimming pool? Yeah, well, I, was it buried in the swimming pool, or did they just, were they just, like, throwing them all around? I mean, I think, I, I'm not sure they were buried. I, I think they found the documents, and then they were strewing them across the grounds of the palace or whatever. Um, and it was quite a nice house. He had quite a nice house, I might add. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's, it's interesting where corruption gets you. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation, thanks for coming to Slice Office. Thank you, brother.